Hello and welcome to this edition of Gospel Doctrine. This week's lesson, number five, If Thou Doest Well, Thou Shalt Be Accepted. It's the story of Cain and Abel and also of Enoch. This week we'll be discussing the chapters five through seven of the book of Moses as well as chapter four of Genesis. A few things as I start out. Number one, I would love to hear from my listeners. If anybody wants to email me, please get in touch with me at GT, as in Gospel Doctrine, GT at gospeltoctrine.com. Also, as in Grand Torino or Great Talks. And it's also as in Garbage Teacher, but we maybe won't hold that against me. Uh, send me an email. You can ask me anything about what we've talked about previous weeks. So you could even go all the way back to the original lesson of the purposes of God, anything about the creation, and I'd be happy to answer those questions at the beginning of the program. But if you are a little bit forward-thinking, you could ask questions about the lessons coming up, and then I will take your questions inserted at the point of the lesson where they make the most sense. And if you do send me an email, please try to include your name and city and I will uh, give you credit for those questions. Also, if you found us on iTunes or if you're listening to us on an iOS device, then your five-star rating will help other members of the church and those seeking instruction find our podcast and it'd be very much appreciated. Obviously, you're under no obligation to do that if you don't think I deserve it, but I hope you're listening for a reason and if you think that it's valuable for people to have this as a resource, then give them that opportunity. Before we dive into the meat of the lesson, I wanted to talk a little bit about the resources that I use to prepare. I suspect, and I hope this is true, that the biggest part of my audience are Gospel Doctrine teachers. And if that's the case, then this will be profitable for you. Number one, you are all aware of this, but it's well worth mentioning the Gospel Library app. It's your number one resource. If you're still teaching from paper scriptures, then this might not be true, but for most of you, you're teaching either from a smartphone or from a tablet, and you have the Church's Gospel Library app. It includes everything, including the scriptures, and includes your, your Gospel Doctrine lesson manual, which is another resource you need. It includes general conference talks all the way back until the 70s, and it includes the Institute manuals, which is the next resource I was going to discuss Specifically, this year, the Pearl of Great Price and the Old Testament Institute manuals. The Pearl of Great Price manual is the thinnest of all, and we're almost through it. We will be using that manual for a couple more weeks as we discuss Abraham and the flood. But basically, the only parts of the Pearl of Great Price and the Bible that intersect are found in the book of Genesis. So as you begin to prepare your lesson, the first thing you're going to do is open up your Gospel Library app. You're going to go to the Gospel Doctrine Manual, find what the lesson topic is for that week, and you're going to find all the scriptures that are listed there and read them. That's the first thing. Then read the lesson in the Gospel Doctrine Manual. Now, my particular approach is not to teach directly from the manual, and there's a specific reason for that. It's not because I find any kind of fault with the manual. It's just that I think there is a need for something that goes well beyond that. And my own personal opinion of the gospel doctrine manual as put out by the church is that it is of a level that is most appropriate for the largest number of people. And it's wonderful. However, there is a demand for the kind of lesson that goes well beyond what the gospel doctrine manual can teach. 
This may or may not apply to your ward. You may want to teach from that manual and only occasionally insert things that make people think a little deeper. And the manual can be quite good. It can make people think deeply. But if I can use a, a school analogy, I would say that people that are in gospel essentials, the first Sunday school class when they join the church, those are people who are in elementary school. They have one, two, three, or four years in the church even. But after that, they go into gospel doctrine. And I think of the church's gospel doctrine manual as sort of a junior high school level class on the scriptures. And quite often, it's not even that because the teacher will say, for example, a David and Goliath lesson, David beat Goliath with faith. How can we use faith to conquer the difficulties in our own life? And while profitable and possibly very spiritual and very much God's will for that class, it doesn't promote a greater understanding of the scriptures. And my goal is to give you what I hope is a college-level class every week on that particular week's scriptures. Now, I don't always succeed in this as well as a professor would. I don't have a doctorate in ancient scriptures. I'm not fluent in any of the languages of the scriptures, Latin, Greek, Hebrew, though I am fascinated by the study of ancient languages, and I try to learn as much as I can as I prepare. And it's very humbling for me to think of my contribution when I have known people who have all of those things to offer and whose understanding of the scriptures is so sharp. Nevertheless, I love to do it, and there are people who have told me that they really enjoy my lessons, and therefore I hope that what I can offer is good, and the fact that it's not perfect, I'm not going to let that stop me. So if you enjoy what we have to offer, please let us know. Send us an email. And also you can comment on the posts that I make every week that go along with each week's lessons. You can post on you can make a comment on that blog post or you can like us on Facebook and comment every week. When I release the podcast, I make a post there that points everyone to the SoundCloud page where we host our podcast. After I read the gospel doctrine lesson, then I go to the Institute manual and I read everything that's written there about the scriptures that are included in the lesson. That's because my priority is to impart an understanding of those scriptures. So I take the scriptures that are referenced in the Gospel Doctrine Manual, and I take everything that I think is most beneficial from the manual itself. And then my first step is to find out what LDS scholars have said about the content of these scriptures. And that's found in the Institute Manuals more often than any other place. Another wonderful resource that we'll use throughout this year and next year is called Strong's Bible Concordance. And a concordance is simply a listing of the words in a book. But this particular concordance, it's almost, it's not quite, but it's almost the size of the Oxford English Dictionary. It is huge. It weighs between 15 and 20 pounds. And it is so fun to carry into a lesson and plop down on the table and everyone looks at it. And we definitely enjoy a fun moment together. And I used that book in my preparations. It was a present to me. But the good news is you don't actually need a hard copy of this book to use it. 
My next resource I'm going to tell you about is BibleHub.com, and it is an amazing website. It is absolutely fantastic. And I have an extended example for you today, later on, about exactly how you can use BibleHub.com to prepare a lesson or to help you in your preparations. And that is just a fun resource that has access to tons of translations of the Bible, as well as the original languages, and commentary from mainstream Christian writers, not from any Mormon writers, but that's very good commentary most of the time. And there are links to Strong's Concordance right on BibleHub.com, so you can get that concordance on the website. After that, I want to tell you about a book that I consider my secret weapon, and I tell you about it because I think a lot of you are gospel doctrine teachers, and I'm kind of joking. It's not really a secret weapon. I don't want to take credit for someone else's ideas, but the truth is, if you will read The Hidden Christ by James Farrell, and that's F-E-R-R-E-L-L, the quality of your lessons in the Old Testament will go up sharply. The entire premise of the book is that even though translators and copyists have taken out a lot of the plain and precious things, the evidence that early prophets talked about Christ, they've taken out those explicit mentions. They couldn't take out the symbolism, the deeper hidden references to Christ, and they're all over the place. And there might be more that he doesn't find, but he finds so many and they're amazing, they're undeniable, and very spiritual. And it goes to reinforce what I said in lesson two, which was, if you can't find Christ on just about every page, or at least in, in every lesson, in every chapter of the Bible, you're doing it wrong. And the Old Testament, that's a little bit less true, because there are a lot of chapters that are simple facts. But so often, there is a hidden meaning that points us to Christ, in the Old Testament, I, I was almost going to say even in the Old Testament, but especially in the Old Testament, because those hidden meanings are the only way we're pointed to Christ there. And so they're that much more prevalent. And it's an amazing book, The Hidden Christ. I highly recommend it. Finally, I have lately started to read a blog by a man named Ted Gibbons, and he writes at ldsliving.com. And he writes a blog entry, as I do, for every week's lesson. But he's about eight weeks ahead of me, and I suspect, I don't know if this is true, I suspect he's had a hand in writing our Gospel Doctrine Manual because the ideas that he expresses are so closely tied in with it, and I consider his blog entries to be just about the best possible lesson that could be prepared from the Gospel Doctrine Manual. They're amazing lessons, and that's worth reading every week. So if you start out by reading the Scriptures, reading the Gospel Doctrine Manual, reading the Institute manuals, and then looking to see in the Hidden Christ if there's some mention of the scriptures that you have for that week. And because the Hidden Christ is a shorter book, there will be a lot of lessons in the Old Testament where you don't have an entry in the Hidden Christ. But for the ones that you do, I guarantee you, you're going to base your entire lesson around whatever he wrote, because it's amazing. And finally, looking at perhaps Ted Gibbons' blog, or if you have another favorite blog on the internet, read what people have written about this lesson. And the reason I do so much preparation up around what other people have done is, number one, I want to take advantage of what LDS scholars have already said. And number two, I want to find out why they have said what they've said. Because when we study each other, when we take advantage of the scholarly work that has been done by other LDS scholars, we also have to find out the reasons why so that we can have faith. It's not like scripture when we study the work of scholars 
we need to understand what they said and we need to understand why and then we need to question it because those things for those ideas to become part of us we need to believe them as strongly as did the original writers or the original proponents of them or they can just be another weapon in our arsenal of seeking out the truth and the better we understand all of the reasoning that led up to conclusions that we read about the more prepared we'll be to learn more the next week. One of my biggest motivations in starting this podcast and in loving teaching gospel doctrine the way that I do is, is the question, what if people were better prepared for gospel doctrine class? Now, I imagine a lot of you teachers have had the experience where you go into your class and no one has read the lesson and no one really knows the story. And this happens more often in the Old Testament than in other books of Scripture. But it happens everywhere. People might not even know the basics behind that week's story. But then I'm sure you've also had the experience where one or two or three or even more people are very well prepared and they know the lesson extremely well. And those few people can affect the quality of the lesson. They can raise it dramatically. You can have such a wonderful lesson with just a few prepared people. And I started asking myself, what would a lesson be like if every single person that came, every single student had read the lesson, read the scriptures, asked themselves all the questions, and they had already gone through the entire Gospel Doctrine manual? And that's kind of the question that gave birth to this podcast, which is, let's assume everybody already starts there then what would the lesson look like? Obviously, those people being prepared in that way would change it dramatically. And that's what I want to offer you, is the kind of questions that you'd ask yourself if you'd already heard the lesson. Let's say that we took, instead of taking four years to go through the standard works, we took eight, and every lesson was offered twice in a row. The first week, you would do the way we do it now, and then the second week, you would obviously have to go a lot deeper. And I just want to skip to the second week. I want to give... Everyone who wants it, the opportunity to get meat instead of milk. And I think at the end of four years, we should all have a much greater understanding of the scriptures. We as Mormons should have a greater understanding of the scriptures than we do. We should be scholars in the scriptures. And there are a lot of mainstream Christian religions that beat our pants off in understanding the Bible. And that we should not let that be the case. I mean, in general, sure, they have fewer scriptures to study, and that's understandable. But we should hold our own in our level of scriptural scholarship with any religion on the planet, and that includes Judaism. They're so, their identity is so involved with understanding the scriptures, and it's just such a wonderful thing. But we should be no less so than they are. And I think we should take righteous pride in our understanding and our and our level of scholarship in the scriptures and the amount of time we spend doing it, and in the love we give those scriptures. God commanded us, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength. And this is one of the ways we love God with our mind, is by studying the scriptures and asking ourselves the deep questions and memorizing things that need memorizing and and perhaps finding explanations for things that don't fit and then finding alternate explanations and testing them against each other. And in doing this, we will actually come to know the characters, the people 
in the scriptures, the, the everyday people, and especially the prophets, those are the people that should be part of our lives. Now, a couple other minor resources. I'm a big clipboard guy. If you ever see me in person, you'll see me teaching a lesson. You'll see me with a clipboard. And I'm involved in aviation in my day job. So I have an aluminum clipboard and it's one of my favorite things it sounds so stupid my sister makes fun of me for it but every time I need to take notes I just have to have a clipboard and I put two or three blank sheets of paper underneath the one I'm writing on so it's nice and soft and then I use a pilot g2 pen I like the nice thick pen the one millimeter wide point because I'm a one of my hobbies is calligraphy and I just love to write with a nice smooth writing pen it feels so good that's something that gives me a lot of pleasure I don't know if you have a similar system or if you have little quirks about the way you like to prepare your lesson the way I do, but if so, then more power to you. And a final resource that's available to you, I hope you all take advantage of, and that's Gospel Doctrine, this podcast. Welcome to it. Now, when I walk in to teach a lesson, one of the first things that I try to do is involve everyone, give them a need to know what I'm about to teach. And there's a little trick you can use that works almost all the time. And that is do everything you can to make your students feel smart. And so many teachers, so many gospel doctrine or Sunday school teachers in general miss this point. They ask the questions, a lot of times the questions that they are supposed to ask or they're led to ask are questions like, in what ways can we bring the Spirit into our life? And we all know that we call them the Sunday school answers because they're so common and they're so easy and it makes people feel stupid to answer them. Well, we should pray. We should read our scriptures. Those answers are true, and those questions are important, and yet we don't need to spend a lot of time on them because they're going to make the level of participation go down, and they're going to give your students less of a desire to hear what's coming up next because they're going to feel like it's going to make them look stupid. The perception is they think it was something that required thought, and then because it's so simple— then they kind of look dumb. And so you'll notice a reluctance for people to answer that question, and it's for that reason. It doesn't make them look smart. So I like to ask myself in the lesson, how can I make my students look smart feel and feel like they are smart and they are learning? And one of the first things that I do is I say, okay, this is the story of Cain and Abel. Does anyone know the story? And if a few people raise their hands, I ask one of them, okay, tell us the story. And no matter what parts of the story they miss or get, I always say what a great job they've done because nobody's going to get exactly the parts that I wanted to pick out, and that's fine. Usually, a volunteer will tell the important parts of the story and also will, will pick out those elements that most people are familiar with, and that's the best outcome. And so make sure that when somebody participates, you always praise them, unless they are just absolutely taking your lesson out into... 100% left field or saying things that are false doctrine or damaging, praise what they've said and let them know how much you appreciate them participating. And if you can, take something that they've said and build on it for a moment or two, at least a couple of sentences, so that they feel like their contribution mattered and everyone in your class will be more likely to raise their hands the next time you ask a question. So let's jump right into this week's lesson First of all, we all do know the story of Cain and Abel. Nevertheless, I'm going to tell it to you again. And it's the story of two brothers, the sons of Adam and Eve. Abel was a keeper of sheep, and they both made a sacrifice. Cain was a tiller of the ground, 
Abel brought a sheep, and Cain brought his fruits, and God accepted Abel's sacrifice and didn't accept Cain's. And from there came the conflict. Eventually, Cain killed Abel. Now, there are several things missing from the Genesis account, and that's found in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to start our reading, and this is why the Pearl of Great Price is so wonderful. I think the chapters that we're going to go over today, chapters 5 through 7, are some of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. And I love the Book of Mormon, but I think if you can read chapters 6 and 7 of the Book of Moses and not be struck by how original it is and how beautiful the writing is and how much it teaches us about the love of God and how unexpected the doctrines in there are and yet how true they are, then you're missing something amazing. And I think it's every bit as good as any part of the Book of Mormon. It is just a wonderful few chapters in Scripture. This is the story of Enoch, so we'll go over that as well. So the first question that somebody reading the Genesis account would say is, why did God reject Cain's sacrifice? Genesis says, And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. But it doesn't say why. And so that's the first question. What was the problem with Cain's offering? Now in the book of Moses, we learn a few things we didn't know. One of those is that before the offering was even made, Cain grew to love Satan. Cain also was encouraged by Satan to make the offering in the first place. So that's never good when Satan tells you to do something that God also wants you to do. That means you're probably not going to do it in exactly the right way. And that was the case with Cain. Before the offerings were given, and this is in Moses chapter 5, verse 5, we learn that Adam had been commanded to make a sacrifice of the firstlings of the flock. Now, this is actually a new realization for me. Every time I've read this, I've thought about the sacrifices that were commanded under the law of Moses, and there are grain offerings and there are other plant-based offerings in the law of Moses. And I always thought Cain was making one of those, and I didn't realize that the commandment was very clear. It was the firstlings of the flock. So these aren't the same sacrifices that were commanded under the law of Moses. This is a simple offering of the firstlings of the flock. A couple of things that are interesting about that. So number one, Cain had perverted the commandment, and because he was a tiller of the ground... He, in his pride, thought that he could just offer whatever it was that was the products of his labor. So a couple of thoughts about that. One is that Abel knew the commandment, and obviously the two of these chose their professions. Abel chose to be a keeper of sheep, and he might have been influenced in that choice by thinking, okay, I don't want anyone to be in between me and the resources that I need to give the Lord his due. And that's an interesting idea. I don't know whether it's true or not, but Cain also chose to till the ground. So in order to get any offering to make a sacrifice, he would have had to trade with someone. Now, I'm sure he could have done it, and I'm sure Abel would have helped him out with that. Abel was a righteous man, and we know Abel was a righteous man because in section 138 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we learned that he was among the righteous awaiting the coming of Christ to the spirit world, and he was... Uh, those who were taught directly from Christ and then presumably would have been among the first that were resurrected. So Abel was a righteous man. He would have helped Cain have the animals he needed for his sacrifice. But Cain could have been both a tiller of ground and he could have kept a few sheep 
that he could have used for a sacrifice. He doubtless could have done that, and he chose not to. And instead, he wanted an excuse. Rather than wanting to do what was required under the commandments, what Cain wanted was an excuse why he couldn't. So that's my idea. I don't know whether it's true. But he chose to till the ground, and then he chose to get his feelings hurt when the fruits of his labor, quote-unquote, the literal fruits and the figurative fruits of his He chose to get his feelings hurt when the literal fruits and the figurative fruits... He chose to get his feelings hurt when the figurative and literal fruits of his labor were not accepted because he hadn't fulfilled the commandment. And Satan had encouraged him to try to fulfill that commandment, but to do it in a way that was not exactly the way the Lord had asked. And that was because Satan knew he'd get his feelings hurt. And he also knew that Abel would then come around and say to his brother, hey, can I help you out with that? You seem like you're having problems. And we don't know how annoying Abel was, but later on we learn that he was annoying enough that it was one of the two reasons that Cain killed him. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Right away, Cain gets his feelings hurt and ceases from that time of listening to the Lord at all. He completely shuts the Lord out of his mind. And we learn a little bit earlier that Adam and Eve could hear the voice of God coming, as it were, from the direction of the Garden of Eden. So even though they had been shut out from the presence of the Lord, they had the voice of God. And maybe that's what Cain heard as well. At least it says God talked to Cain. Isn't that interesting? Maybe the world was in the process of being fallen, but it wasn't completely fallen because God was talking to someone who was such a sinner that he loved Satan more than God. And yet that person could hear the voice of God. And I think now today to hear the voice of God, you've got to be somebody who's followed the will of God most of your life. You've got to be quite exceptional. But in that time, apparently it didn't take much because Cain and Abel were both equally able to do it. But then God says to Cain, he says the title of our lesson, If thou doest well, thou shalt be accepted. And the voice of God talked to Adam and Eve and presumably their children. But then Satan did the same thing. Behold, I also am a son of God. And he commanded them, saying, Believe it not. And they believed it not. And they loved Satan more than God. So Satan won a great victory. And we don't know what form his counterfeits took. But like all the counterfeits of Satan, we can presume that he was offering short-term rewards and long-term suffering rather than short-term work and long-term happiness. So Cain became the kind of person who wanted a short-term reward. And when, number one, he'd been spurned by God and then preached to by Abel, and number two, he saw that Abel actually had a lot of wealth. The Lord probably had blessed Abel with prosperity for his flocks. And Cain, we don't know, but maybe he was jealous because he was poor. Now, one of the biggest themes in the second half or final third of the Book of Mormon are the secret combinations that bring their entire society crashing down. In other words, a few powerful people who make the entire nation commit evil. And even though the Pearl of Great Price comes after the Book of Mormon in our triple combination. The story here is chronologically first. And in the Book of Ether, it says these things were had from the beginning, these kinds of secret combinations, as they're called. These conspiracies, they've existed since the beginning, and now we see the first one. Because Satan says to Cain, 
let's combine. Let's get with all of your relatives, and they can all help you. And we don't know exactly what form that help took, but presumably to hide the spoils. Maybe they helped him move these animals out of there and take them somewhere else, or maybe they bought the animals from him so that it wouldn't be so obvious that he'd stolen from Abel. But in any case, he made a covenant with all these people that they'd keep it secret so that Adam wouldn't find out. Presumably, Adam was powerful enough to exact some sort of punishment upon his son for killing his other son. And they hid the sin, and they swore that they would all die if they revealed their partner's sin. So they all promised to cover each other's sins. And that's the definition of a secret combination, is that they all participate in sin to get short-term gain and then cover it for each other. And Cain said at this time, he gloried in his wickedness, and he said, I am free. So that is a very good question to ask your students. What does that mean? In what way was he free? Or why would he think he's free? That's an even better question, because obviously he wasn't free. But why would he think he's free? What sort of counterfeit was the freedom that he had? And why was it an attractive counterfeit? He had his wealth. He had his brother's wealth. And you might remember if you listened to the, our week two, when we talked about Satan's plan, what he wanted was to offer those that would follow him freedom from the consequences of their actions. So those are the two ways in which Cain was free. He was free to enjoy the short-term gains of the particular counterfeit of Satan that he'd chosen. Instead of mercy and hard work and sacrifice, he'd chosen murder and theft. And those afforded him certain short-term gains of wealth. And secondly, he was free, or so he thought, from the consequences of his actions. Now, whenever we think we're going to be free from the consequences of our actions, that's a lie of Satan. And Satan told Cain a number of lies. And they worked. So after the murder, God's voice again came to Cain, and he said, Where's Abel, thy brother? And then Cain answers and says, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? And here's the example I promised you that we're going to go into on Bible Hub. So if you're in front of your computer, and here's another resource, this is not too big of a secret, but in any meeting house that I've ever been in in the United States and a lot of other places too, you can get on LDS Access Wi-Fi and the password is capital P Pioneer 47, FYI. So if you happen to be looking at the internet right now, go into biblehub.com and I'll teach you how to use it a little bit. Across the top, you'll see the books and chapters of the Bible. So in the correct pull-down menu, click on Genesis and then the page will reload briefly to load the chapters of Genesis. Then in the chapters and verses, go to Genesis chapter 4 verse 9. And that will load up that verse in your browser. Now, if you want to look at this, you can for a bit. You can see all the commentary on the left. You can see all the translations of that verse if you want to click on those corresponding links. But right now what we're going to do in the middle of the white navigation, just under the navigation where you see all the different translations, there are several categories. And one of them is Hebrew. And if this were the New Testament, you would see Greek. So you click on that Hebrew and that loads the page that shows the original Hebrew of this verse, and it reads from top to bottom, and the word we're interested in is keeper. So we find that word in this verse, and then we look to the left. And what we're going to do is click on the Romanized word, ha-somer, 
which Hasomer, the Hebrew for which, appears to the right of it. And that brings up a page where it shows all of the places where this word occurs. And over on the right, you see concordance entries, Strong's Hebrew 8104. Now, in Strong's concordance, every word that occurs gets a number depending on where it is in the Bible. And so this is the 8,104th word in the Hebrew scriptures that Strong indexed. And so we clicked on Strong's Hebrew 8104. And if you scroll down, here's the dictionary entry. It's amazing. So imagine all of these entries for every word in the Bible. You can see why that book would be so thick. And this is kind of fun to read. And in fact, this is where it really gets fascinating. This is why, for me, it can be even more rewarding to study the Old Testament than it can be to study the Book of Mormon, because you don't get this opportunity in the Book of Mormon to know the original Hebrew. And when I say original Hebrew, I mean the Hebrew that survived into the 10th or 11th centuries when we got what we call today the Masoretic text. And some of this Hebrew is doubtless original, and some of it, and some of it we don't know with too much certainty how accurate it is. And of course, that's a problem. It would be nice to know that it's 100% accurate. However, the fact that it has been translated gives us this rich ability to do what we're about to do. And we're going to take this word keeper, and we're going to figure out what it might have meant. Every other word in that verse is very clear. I know not, am I my brother's keeper? They're all clear except for keeper. What, is, what does Cain mean by keeper? And we find out that whenever this word is used in other places in the Bible, it has a number of meanings. And one of them is just keep, watch, preserve, as you might expect. But it also means to guard, to be the watchman over. So am I somebody who's supposed to stay awake at all night and watch my brother? Am I supposed to follow him around? And it's also used in the context of captives. Interestingly enough, in Samuel, Saul uses it to command his people to lie in wait for David. And they're going to watch him for an opportunity to kill him. And one easy objection to this approach is that Cain would doubtless have been using the original Adamic language with God. And so there wouldn't have been that ambiguity in what he was saying. But Moses is the one telling us this story, and Moses would have written it down in Hebrew or something very close to it. And Moses may have intended this ambiguity. And that question just gives rise to a lot of interesting discussion. And contained in this word are three meanings that I find when he says, am I my brother's keeper? Number one is the lie, because it's a straw man. Nobody ever told him he had to watch over his brother. He had to guard him day and night. He's trying to deny any responsibility to act civilly towards his brother by, by pretending that somebody's given him a role that he never had. But number two, he's also telling an inadvertent truth because he did lie and wait for his brother. And in that sense, he was his keeper. And number three, it's a self-condemnation because in fact, he does have the duty to look out for him. And another meaning of this word is to keep as in keep a commandment or to observe as in to observe a commandment. And he did have the duty to keep his brother, to observe his brother, to preserve his brother, just like he had to preserve the commandments. And so in all three of those meanings, Cain is condemned and trapped before God can even say, the blood of thy brother calls out to me from the earth for vengeance. Cain has already condemned himself with his own word. Am I my brother's keeper? A fascinating way of using Bible Hub and also just a very good example of why we research the meaning of Hebrew words in the first place and try to go back to the original language as far as we can and get as many meanings as we can. So it's impossible to be certain, but it sure is fun to wonder. And at this point, 
an interesting thing and a heartbreaking thing happens to Cain. He became even worse than Satan. He was more powerful, and we've learned modern revelation tells us that Cain will rule over Satan because he has a body. And Cain was the original son of perdition. And in our day, son of perdition is somebody who sins against the greatest light that there is. And being someone who heard the voice of God directly, that was Cain. So he heard the voice of God and he preferred Satan's voice. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why God doesn't speak so readily to people. But Satan also learned a lesson since that time. In the Book of Mormon, Lehi describes Satan's tactics as he lulls them carefully into complacency, saying, I am no devil, for there is none. But at this time, uh, Satan would just show up and people could know that Satan existed because there he was speaking his voice into their ears. And that would have made it easier for those who wanted to be righteous to recognize. So Satan has given up on that tactic, and now he tries to hide his identity and, and hide the fact that he even exists. And that seems to be working very well for him today, but this strategy also worked very well. It wasn't too long before the majority of Adam's posterity was following Satan. And we know that because one of Adam's great-grandchildren, Canaan, spelled a little differently than the land of Canaan, was given a land of promise. And this is the first example of what you might call an exodus. And we saw it happen not only in the actual book of Exodus, but also when Lehi and his family leave Jerusalem. And again, in the Book of Mormon, when Nephi takes all those who will follow him and leaves Laman and Lemuel behind. And this is much more similar to that event when there's a bunch of brethren, they're all family, and obviously one part of them wants to be righteous, but it's a less strong part. And the Lord reveals to them, hey, I've got a better place for you to live, and you're going to be free if you just come out of there. But then those two peoples end up warring with each other and being bitter enemies for generations to come. And that's what happened here. So Canaan and his family, and Adam is still alive at this time. So we can presume that Adam is the patriarch still. But they all remove themselves to the land of Canaan. In Canaan, not C-A-A-N-A-N, but C-A-I-N-A-N. And that's actually relevant because later on, they talk about the actual land of Canaan, C-A-A-N-A-N, as the spelled in the Bible, and they seem to be different. But in the righteous land of Canaan, or the land of promise, that's where Enoch is born. He's the great-grandson of Canaan, the great-grandson of Adam. And there is a strong argument to be made that Enoch is the greatest prophet whoever lived. Certainly, he's the greatest missionary. And it's hard to say he's the greatest prophet because Adam took a greater role in the plan of salvation and Joseph Smith restored the truth and John the Baptist was praised by Jesus himself as having no one in the kingdom of God who was greater. But it's just such an amazing story. He's called from among a nation of prophets. And the first thing he says is, why would you choose me, Lord? I'm the most humble of all of your servants, and I'm but a lad. Now, he was at least 65 years old. But if you consider that Adam was over 600 years old, and all of the generations in between had various ages in between 100 and 600 years old, and they had all been serving God their entire lives. And so Enoch had good reason to feel like he wasn't worthy for such a calling. Nevertheless, out of that entire nation, Enoch was the one called to return to 
what in the Book of Mormon would have been called the land of Nephi, their original, the home of their first inheritance. And Enoch was called to go back there and preach to them. And along the way, he was given powerful visions, including what to me is one of the coolest stories in all of Scripture, which is when the Lord says to him, anoint your eyes with clay. And so Enoch is commanded to put mud on his eyes and then wash it off, much as the Savior healed the blind men during his life. Enoch heals his own spiritual blindness, as it were. And when he washes this clay off of his eyes, he opens his eyes, and he finds that he has the ability to see into the spiritual world. In other words, visually, the veil has been parted for him. And he can see the ministrations of spirits, and he can behold things. It says, and he beheld also things which were not visible to the natural eye. And from thenceforth came the saying abroad in the land, a seer hath the Lord raised up unto his people. So we don't know everything that his gift included, but we know that he was given a vision of the entire earth. Now that verse that I just read was Moses chapter 6, verse 36. But later on, when Enoch finally does find himself among those who are unbelievers, he gives this description of his vision, the heavens I saw, and the Lord spake with me and gave me commandment. And in the next chapter, Moses gives this description. And it came to pass, this is verse 21 of chapter 7, And it came to pass that the Lord showed unto Enoch all the inhabitants of the earth. So Enoch saw his entire world upon which he lived. And Enoch beholds the Mother Earth, which is, I think, one of the few times that a mention is made of Mother Earth in the scriptures. But he sees the earth as a living thing with a spirit, something that is very distressed about the wickedness that is being acted out upon her face. And Enoch prays and prays. The rest of the vision takes the form of Enoch worried about the earth suffering because the suffering of the earth was so intense with all the sin on its face. And so he keeps begging the Lord, when will the earth get to rest? When will the earth get to rest? And the first thing that Enoch is shown is the vision of the time of Christ. And Moses uses an interesting phrase. He says, the Lord calls the time of the coming of Jesus, the days of wickedness and vengeance. And he uses that phrase again in verse 60. He says, as I live, even so will I come in the last days in the days of wickedness and vengeance. And that's an interesting parallel between the time of the first coming of the Son of Man and the time of the second coming. They're both times of wickedness and vengeance. And if we look around us in the world today, that description would certainly fit to a large extent. And it will become more and more apt as we get closer to the second coming. But even seeing Jesus come and perform his atonement and then seeing the second coming getting closer didn't make Enoch feel any better. What he wanted was to see the earth rest. He had a vision of all of God's creations associated with this world. And the thing that perturbed him the most was the suffering of the earth itself. It's so interesting. And he couldn't stop asking God to see more until he finally could see a time when the earth would rest. The wickedness upon the earth distressed him that much. And this is why I mentioned Enoch as the greatest missionary ever, because he went to the wickedest population that the world has known. The people that he didn't reach were destroyed. God had to kill everyone with a flood, or else they would have just polluted their children and the posterity of God forever with wickedness. He went to that kind of people and converted enough of them to such righteousness that they were all translated. And I guess that included many, if not most, of the original righteous people who came away from the posterity of Adam into the original promised land. 
So Enoch didn't do it by himself. He had other patriarchs and friends and relatives helping him teach, but he was the missionary and he was the seer and people would come and his spirit was so strong that they were just stunned as they listened and he taught fearlessly. And the city was called Zion. And Zion is something that is so worth thinking about. When I ask the question, what is Zion? I imagine the first phrase that comes into your head is the pure in heart. But Zion is a lot more than that. Zion is a place where people are united in the cause of Christ. Zion is a place where evil is not given a foothold. And it's not that impossible a goal to realize to create a Zion. If you think about it, you probably know enough people in your ward that if you were to get together, you'd be pretty close. And that doesn't mean that sinners wouldn't be welcome there. I know that Zion was the kind of place where people progressed personally through service. And service happens from sinner to sinner. So it didn't mean that they all were amazingly righteous without any sin. It meant that they were all humble enough to continually improve and help each other and serve each other. I had a very wonderful talk in my sacrament meeting last week. It was a young man who returned not too long ago from his mission, but he'd been with his father and brother on a humanitarian expedition to Nicaragua, I think it was, and they were a bunch of dentists and dentist assistants, and they came down there with all this equipment, all this old dental equipment, because they had found a need in so many missionaries that were called from that country. They would get on their missions, and they wouldn't have any dental work done. A lot of them had never seen a dentist, and then they would lose tons of missionary days recovering from their dental procedures that would be covered once they were on a mission. And so these dentists saw the need, and they decided to go down there and find all these pre-missionaries and give them free dental care. And so they went for two weeks, and they just did dental work every day and were helping these people. And it soon grew beyond just the prospective missionaries to the youth and even other people outside of the church coming in and receiving free dental care. And at one point, one of the dentists said to this young man, if you want to know what Zion is like, just look around. And that has stayed with me ever since I heard that talk, because he was right. These people created a little piece of Zion right here on the earth. They were all united in service and love. And the people receiving service were receiving it gratefully, and they were looking forward to serving the Lord in their own ways. And we know that we're going to have to create Zion again one day. The problem is we all think that we have to wait for the time to be right. It can only happen when the second coming is nigh. Then in the appointed time of the Lord, we can be called to travel wherever Zion is going to be created and live there. And only then will conditions be right for us to create the pure in heart. And that is so wrong. Enoch didn't wait. Enoch saw the need in his own society and created Zion. There was nothing inevitable about the Zion of Enoch. He felt so keenly the suffering of the earth at the wickedness that he saw that he had to do everything he could to alleviate it. And he spent his whole life doing that. He was absolutely fearless in proclaiming the truth all the days of his life. And he did it so well and so long. And he was so blessed with the Lord that he took everyone he knew with him. And they created the pure in heart. Enoch had a similar experience to other prophets that we read about in the scriptures, most notably Enos, in my mind, from the Book of Mormon, who prayed so long that finally God said, okay, whatever you're asking me, I have to give it to you. And Enos was praying for the Lamanites. He was praying first for the Nephites and second for the Lamanites. 
And finally, God said, yes, I will give this thing unto you. And it is the same thing that thy fathers have required of me, and I have promised it unto them. Wherefore, I cannot fail to do it. God made a covenant. Because of the prayers of one man, God was willing to bless an entire people. And that happened before Enos. That happened with Enoch. And in Moses chapter 7, verse 50, we read about one of Enoch's prayers, that Enoch continued his cry unto the Lord, and he's asking in the name of Jesus Christ that he'd have mercy upon Noah and his seed. And in verse 51, it says, And the Lord could not withhold, and he covenanted with Enoch. So he made a covenant with Enoch to bless the entire population of the world because of the faith of this one person. So can we create Zion on this earth? The answer is yes. Again, there's nothing inevitable about what Enoch did. He just couldn't stop praying. He couldn't stop exercising faith. He couldn't stop proclaiming the gospel. He couldn't stop using the priesthood. He couldn't stop doing all that he did in the name of the Son. And we have the same promise. If you've ever heard of the concept of sister cities, the city of Zion will return to the earth one day. That's a promise that we have from this chapter. But it will return only when there is a matching city to be found here on earth already. In verse 62, God tells Enoch, In verse 62, God tells Enoch of the restoration. And then after a time, righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood, to gather out mine elect from the four quarters of the earth unto a place which I shall prepare, an holy city that my people may gird up their loins and be looking forth for the time of my coming. For there shall be my tabernacle, and it shall be called Zion the new Jerusalem. And the Lord said unto Enoch, now we're in verse 63, then shalt thou and all thy city meet them there, and we will receive them into our bosom, and they shall see us, and we will fall upon their necks, and they shall fall upon our necks, and we will kiss each other. And there shall be mine abode, and it shall be Zion, which shall come forth out of all the creations which I have made, and for the space of a thousand years the earth shall rest. This is one of the most beautiful promises given to anyone in Scripture. Now here's the most fascinating part. All of the promises made to Enoch are also to us, and I can prove it to you. If you look in the Joseph Smith translation in the appendix of your Bible, you will find in Genesis 14, verse 30, it says, For God, having sworn unto Enoch and unto his seed with an oath by himself, that everyone being ordained after this order and calling should have power by faith to break mountains, to divide the seas, to dry up waters, to turn them out of their course, to put at defiance the armies of nations, to divide the earth, to break every band, to stand in the presence of God, to do all things according to his will, according to his command, subdue principalities and powers, and this by the will of the Son of God, which was from before the foundation of the world. And men having this faith coming up unto this order of God were translated and taken up into heaven. Enoch was a progenitor of Noah, and Noah is the ancestor of the human race. And in verse 30, it says, God swore unto Enoch and unto his seed. All of these promises that Enoch received, he kept. You can read in Moses chapter 7 how he set at defiance the armies of nations. Enoch was unconquerable, and they came at him with armies, and he set them at defiance without even having to fight. So God has promised us that one day we will build the new Jerusalem. But what I learned last Sunday in sacrament meeting was we don't have to wait. We have this ability and we have this promise. We have a covenant from God that we have the same gifts as Enoch had. And we now know 
that we have the same priesthood that he had. Anyone who is called unto this order, in other words, to the Melchizedek priesthood, which at that time would have just been called the priesthood after the order of the Son of God. That priesthood exists today. Those blessings have been restored to the earth, and we don't have to wait. There was nothing magical about the time of Enoch, except that Enoch was never going to settle. He was never going to rest until he built an entire nation full of people who were sanctified. And it may just be that rather than us waiting on the Lord to have the time be right, he's waiting on us to build that sort of people, to build that sort of city. And by city, it just means a community. We have to better ourselves. We have to repent. We have to be humble. There's more, so much more in Moses chapter 7. But let me conclude with this. After Enoch has been translated, he sees even more of the creations of God than Moses did. And he sees that God is weeping for the wickedness of the earth. And in verse 29, Enoch said unto the Lord, How is it that thou canst weep, seeing thou art holy, and from all eternity to all eternity? And were it possible that man could number the particles of the earth, yea, millions of earths like this, it would not be a beginning to the number of thy creations. And thy curtains are stretched out still, and yet thou art there, and thy bosom is there. And also, thou art just, thou art merciful and kind forever. This is such a powerful description of the glory of God. It's also absolute surprise that God could be so affected. And God's response is this, Behold, these thy brethren, they are the workmanship of mine own hands. And I gave unto them their knowledge in the day I created them. And in the garden of Eden gave I unto man his agency. Down in verse 36, Wherefore, I can stretch forth mine hands and hold all the creations which I have made. And mine eye can pierce them also. And among all the workmanship of mine hands, there has not been so great wickedness as among thy brethren. And in verse 37, And misery shall be their doom, and the whole heavens shall weep over them, even all the workmanship of mine hands. Wherefore should not the heavens weep, seeing these shall suffer? So God, the creator of endless millions of worlds, in fact, millions of worlds like ours, if you counted all the particles on them, that would not be a beginning to the number of the worlds that God has created. That is just a mind-boggling fact. And yet, he weeps over every soul who suffers. And that's so comforting because I'm a soul who's suffered. I'm a soul who's sinned. I know that God weeps over the prophet when he suffers, or the apostles, or my bishop, or the people who are better than me. But these are people who are way worse than me. I don't have any problem seeing that. They were all murderers and worshipers of Satan, and yet God was weeping over them. He cared about them. He singled them out in all of his creations to mourn over them. And he called Enoch and sent one of the greatest prophets who ever lived to minister to them. God cares about us so much, and he has extended us such powerful promises. And this is the God of all the universe, the universe whose scale we can't even come close to comprehending. That is the glory of the plan of salvation. And it just brings to mind the scripture in Corinthians, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. How could it have entered into our hearts? How could we have imagined any of the things that God hath prepared for us? Because they're too glorious to be imagined, but they exist, they're real. They happened to Enoch. He brought them to pass. And we have that same promise, we have the same opportunity, and we have the same power, and we have the same Savior. I pray that we'll believe this, and act on it, and live by it. 
I pray for all of you who are listening. May God bless you and bring you greater light and knowledge and understanding in the scriptures. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt, with bumper music in this episode by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints.